Boy, was anybody else excited to keep going through the Sabbath series this morning? Because that's what I wanted. That would have been awesome, but I'm not. That's not. I don't know what that is. So I'm going to learn with you guys. Instead, we are going to go back to the book of Mark. So I hope that's not a disappointment for you. I'm going to play my cards right now. Uh, My goal today is to just point our eyes at Jesus. That's it. That's the beginning. That's the end. Whatever you brought in the door today, whatever's been heavy on your heart, cards on the table, you can find the answer in Jesus. So you can go home now. That's probably it. But I'm going to continue preaching if that's all right with you. I'm going to try it. Ready? No, I don't want to go home yet. Okay. You don't have to go home. Amen. You know what? I'm just going to put it there. I forgot a stool. And it was too hot. So here we are. Good morning again. It is really good to see you guys. Uh, I like to be able to do this. This is not my normal position at the church, but I love you guys, and I hope that I can provide some sort of focus for us today to continue looking at the Word. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. It's been a couple of months since we've been in Mark, because we've been working on things like the spiritual disciplines, such as the Sabbath. Uh, We did a short topical mini-series about Imago Dei, or it's the doctrine of uh, bearing the image of God. And of course, before that, we taught through Advent. So it's been several months. Uh, My plan is is to give us just a little refresher to kind of bring us all back up to speed. The book of Mark is one of the synoptic gospels meaning that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give an account about the same time frame, the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Mark doesn't have a genealogy like we would find in the book of Matthew, uh, of Jesus, and the story of Jesus' birth that we find in Luke is also not in Mark. So basically, in the book of Mark, from chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book, it covers the time that Jesus spent with his disciples. And as a fellow disciple of Jesus, as we all are fellow disciples of Jesus, I think that that's pretty exciting. We, we said in the summer of 2022, if you guys remember, because I went back and watched that sermon, uh, it was back at the other church, it was weird. That video was old. Holy moly. We said, though, in 2022, that we are going to go through this sermon series, and it's going to take us about three years to get to the end of the book. And we're on track to do that. We're still going to do that. What that means is, We will have spent the same amount of time studying the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ, as the disciples spent walking with him and talking with him. You guys may remember these. The book of Mark has three motifs, some common threads that run through each story in this gospel account. The first one is Peter's voice. Now, we call it the gospel according to Mark, but Mark is actually the man that wrote down Peter's firsthand account of Jesus' ministry. So, we will get to hear things from the perspective of Peter as he walked and talked with Jesus during his three-year ministry. The second motif of Mark's gospel is human longing. Now, the gospel takes place about 400 years after supposed radio silence from God. The last time that the Israelites had heard from God, it had been 400 years before this. These people are hurting. They're confused. They're spread out. They're occupied by their enemies, and they long for something. They long for anything to give their pain, their frustration, meaning. The same thing that probably everybody in this room feels or felt at some point. 
They long for a Messiah, a deliverer, but they don't really know what that means. The third motif of Mark's gospel is Jesus' identity, who Jesus is. We see Jesus from the eyes of Peter as he walks closely with his rabbi, but he, nor really any of the other disciples, really begin to understand who Jesus is until about the eighth chapter. Okay? So these last two motifs are especially apparent in our passage today. So Mark chapter 6, open up there. Uh, the last time we heard from Peter slash Mark, in my opinion, Jesus was doing some of the most captivating events in all of Scripture. You may remember, I think I actually preached the last one sermon, but Jesus had healed a, a, a demoniac, a guy that was howling at the moon. He was breaking chains with his hands, and he was, he was living in a graveyard. He caused a bunch of pigs to, to dive into the ocean and kill themselves, holding those demons that he sent out of the demoniac. He raised a little girl from the dead with nothing but his authority, his words, It's kind of been back-to-back accounts of Jesus performing miracle after miracle, like huge win after win. The people uh, around Galilee have been following Jesus. They've been longing to learn from him and receive his blessings. They've been longing to see his miracles. Often, what we would see in any of these stories is that the crowds were, the word is amazed. The crowds were amazed. That word shows up a multitude of times in the Gospels to describe the people's reaction to Jesus as Jesus does things that, frankly, only he can do. So let's see what the word says for us today. Verse 1 of chapter 6. It's going to be behind me. You guys will be able to follow along. But if you've got a paper Bible, highly recommend it. You might find something a little different than the translation we're using. So verse 1 says this. Now Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Verse 2. When the Sabbath came... He began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did he get these ideas? And what is this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these miracles that are done through his hands? So that word astonished in verse 2. We expect at this point that Jesus basically does one of two things every time he enters somewhere new. He's either sought out by somebody that needs him, Or he enters the synagogue and teaches just the most controversial, like, life-altering message that the people have ever heard. And then, no matter which one it is, the crowds around Jesus are amazed. That's normally what happens. And then the Pharisees come and try to muck it up. Now, mostly the same thing happens here. But that word we just read, and I I put it in bold, astonished is not a synonym for the amazed that we usually see. Okay, full disclosure, I'm not really the guy that's going to give you lectures on the Greek language. I can barely speak English as it stands. But, but the phrasing, it caught my attention, and I'm glad it did. So the word in the original Greek, astonished that we see there, it, it's something closer to shocked, to uh, panicked even. It is something that would cause people to lash out. And certainly it's not the reaction that you or I would want or expect when we give good news. For some added context, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a good chunk of time in Luke chapter 4. So if you guys want to turn there, you can. We'll spend enough time there. If you want to just hang out and mark, either way, it'll be right behind me on the screens. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Luke 4 because it arguably gives a more full account of these events. 
Now, there is some contention there. Not, not every scholar agrees whether or not this is the same event. Uh, many would argue that there are actually two rejections that Jesus faces in Nazareth. In Nazareth. Uh, but since Jesus uses the same phrase in, in both of these accounts, and in fact in all four Gospels, uh, when he enters Nazareth, he enters the same parable, uh, or excuse me, a proverb. Um, since he does that all four times, I'm going to assume that this is the same event told from two different perspectives. We see Peter's perspective, and then we're going to see Luke's perspective. So anyways, let's read in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, please. Verse 16 says this. Now Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. So this is what he's doing. This is just what he does. He always enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found his place, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, which is a really baller move. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to tell them, today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. Jesus just gave everybody some really good news, right? Like, you know, there's captives that are going to be released. Blind people are going to see again. The year of the Lord's favor is starting now. I don't know what that means, but that sounds like good news. But catch what the other Nazarenes do. The other Na the Na Nazarethans. Nazarene. Nazarites? No, that's a different thing. So what do the other people in Nazareth do? Pick back up in verse 22. I shouldn't have said that. Verse 22. All were speaking well of Jesus and were amazed, there is that word, at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself, and say, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown too. And he added, I tell you the truth, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up three and a half years, and there was a great famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to a woman who was a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, yet none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. So a lot happened that kind of felt like it went from zero to 100 real fast. So let's break it down a little bit so we can make sense of it. The people were captivated by Jesus' teaching. They were amazed, but kind of took a left turn there, then they recognized who Jesus was. They're wondering to themselves who this guy is, and then it clicks. The man that's been going around Galilee and performing those signs and miracles is a carpenter from our hometown? Wait a minute. And Jesus immediately knows the hearts of these people, because as soon as they question who he really is, Jesus knows that they want something from him. And then Jesus confronts them with that proverb, knowing that they would try to force Jesus to prove himself to them. 
What they're thinking to themselves right now is, listen, if this man is going around blessing, if there's blessings to be had from this man, we, his hometown, should be the greatest recipients of it. Does that make sense? That's what they wanted. If he's blessing people that he doesn't even know, how much greater are our blessings going to be? But Jesus doesn't give them what they want. He's there to give them what they need. See, Jesus has just told them the greatest news in all of history, that Jesus himself was there to free them from their eternal oppression under sin, but what they all wanted was a miracle maker to grant them their little desires. And if that doesn't sound like the way we treat Jesus sometimes... They've been handed everything that they need, but they ignore it. They ask for more. They just give me more, Jesus. Like, prove yourself to me, Jesus. If you have this power that you seem to have, then use it for what I want. That's what these people are communicating to him. Jesus gives the people the good news. He then challenges their sinful hearts, and he laments, he languishes over the way his own people treat him in verse 24. This is that thing that he quotes in all four accounts of the gospel, where Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and except among his relatives, and except in his own house. Now, to me, this passage feels really relatable. It's like the, the raw humanity of Jesus is on display. It just jumps off the page to me. Like, you know, imagine going home on Christmas, and you go there to help out your family and friends, and they just push you away. They, they reject you. Like, that's got to hurt, right? There's a reason that the Bible calls Jesus the man of sorrows. The familiarity that these people have towards Jesus has completely blocked their ability to see Jesus as anything other than what his, their assumptions told them that he was. Let me read that again. The familiarity these people have towards Jesus has completely blocked their ability to see Jesus as anything other than what their assumptions told them that he was. What we've seen here is the, I would call it the devastating power of unbelief. Now, please don't confuse unbelief for doubt. Those are two different things. Okay, I have spent enough time in life groups and in Bible studies and in, in book clubs to know that many of you, myself included, we struggle with doubts from time to time. That's just what happens. To make matters worse, maybe you're like me, somebody came to you along the way, and they told you something like, if you doubt even one sentence of the Bible, then you couldn't possibly believe the rest of it. Or they give you some like little Christianese phrase where they go, it's either all true or none of it is. And they mean well, they're trying to help, but really all that does is force you to wrestle with the idea that maybe I just don't believe all this if I have trouble with one thing. And that is simply not true. That's not what happens. Now, doubt isn't necessarily a good thing. But doubt does imply a willingness to learn and to be corrected, and most importantly, a willingness to be led to Jesus. And frankly, there are a lot of people that are so sure of every opinion that they have that to be a doubter would honestly be an upgrade. Y'all know anybody like that? Just so sure of everything all the time? Doubt does not make you a bad guy, church. One of the apostles was nicknamed, what's his name? Doubting Thomas. They called him Doubting Thomas. Was he any less of an apostle of Jesus Christ? No, he still was. He was rebuked, but they led him back to Jesus. 
And that's a pretty good place to start, in my humble opinion. That's a pretty good place to be. I do want you to know that doubt can lead you to Jesus. Church, if you have doubts, don't don't shy away from them, or they'll stay doubts forever. Don't be afraid of your doubts, because each doubt is just a seed that has the potential to to sprout, to grow into something that is life-changing for you. So if you have doubts, go ahead and embrace them, but then seek wisdom, and if that wisdom's good, that wisdom will point you right back to Jesus. And if the wisdom's bad, it'll point you away from Jesus, and I want you to find a new wisdom. So what Jesus encounters in Nazareth is just, it's not doubt. They're not doubting him. This is unbelief. So let's continue reading. Mark chapter 6. Let's go ahead and turn, for, turn back to Mark. Sorry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You guys sing the song? Every time. Acts and Romans. Okay, Mark uh, chapter 6. Go back to verse 3. They say this, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and, his, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And so they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house. So this uh, may not jump right off the page to you. But notice here that Peter remembers a couple of key phrases. Firstly, the way that they mention that he's a carpenter, it, it, it is not a fond thing that they're recalling here. This is not a, a, a term of endearment. They're calling Jesus something. They're calling him a common laborer. Isn't this the guy that works with wood? They thought that his words were gracious, but when they realized that he was just some nobody from their village... They wanted nothing to do with that holier-than-thou attitude that Jesus seemed to have. Like, how dare he say that he's the one to fulfill prophecy? Who does this guy think he is? So secondly, Peter draws us our attention to the fact that they call Jesus the son of Mary and not Joseph. There is some implied insult here. Everywhere else in Scripture, you would see that a son is always referred to as the son of their father. Now, that's the norm, but it doesn't happen here. So if I could just call your attention to something, we just call it what it is. Nazareth hears the good news of freedom and life in Christ, and they call him an illegitimate son. There's a word for that. It's not a nice word. That's what they're calling him. They call Jesus common. They call him illegitimate. They question his mother's honor even. So Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, especially in his hometown. Luke's account of this event was that the crowd was so upset at Jesus that they were so mad at this nobody from their backwater town that <laughs> what they did <laughs> was these people that saw Jesus playing as a child, that knew to go to his father for their tables or chairs or whatever they built, They heard this man give the greatest news that's ever been given, and they take Jesus to a cliff and try to throw him off. That's what they do. And Luke says it kind of funny that he just kind of faded into the crowds and he got out. So that doesn't happen. They didn't throw him off the cliff, but they did try. 
Let's pick it up in verse 5. So, Mark 6, verse 5 says this. Jesus was not able to do a miracle there except to lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I think this verse is really important to our passage today. At first read, it kind of sounds like Jesus' ability to exercise his power is somehow uh, hampered, somehow, like by their lack of belief. I I think of that scene from uh, Elf, you guys remember that movie, where Santa needs the power of everybody's belief to get his sleigh off the ground. Like, that's not how Jesus' power works. It's nothing like that. It's a great movie, though. See, Jesus was still clearly able to operate his divine power. Uh, He does say that he was able to lay his hands on a few people and heal them. So why does this passage seem to imply that Jesus was unable to do what Jesus came to do? Well, let's go ahead and keep reading. It'll fill in some some context. This is our last verse of the day, but we got a couple more pages to go. So don't pack up yet. Verse 6 says this, And Jesus was amazed because of their unbelief. Then he went around the villages and taught. I've got to go ahead and assume that it's probably pretty difficult to amaze the one that created everything. I feel like this whole ordeal has kind of flipped my expectations upside down. Like when Jesus rolls up and he teaches salvation, the crowds are supposed to be amazed. They're supposed to rejoice at the good news. And instead, his hometown, they are shocked and they are outraged at Jesus. And now Jesus is the one that's amazed, and it's not a good thing. You see, Nazareth's ability to see Jesus' power and hear his good news and still dig in their heels and refuse to believe, that's what amazes Jesus. Jesus gives every opportunity for us to put our trust in him and Truthfully, time after time after time, we refuse him and choose to go our own way. See, it wasn't Nazareth's unbelief that somehow stripped Jesus of his power, but rather, Nazareth's unbelief stopped them from coming to Jesus at all. That's the relationship between our faith and Jesus' blessings. Our lack of faith doesn't prevent Jesus from providing for us. Our lack of faith just stops us from bringing our needs to Jesus in the first place. After Nazareth made it clear that they wouldn't believe Jesus, he left. Jesus left. And he went to the other villages and taught. That's the incredible power of unbelief. See, church, the difference between doubt and unbelief is that where a healthy doubt can lead you to Jesus, unbelief will aggressively refuse the truth. We live in the world of unbelief. If you want to share the hope that lives within you, this is, this is what we're up against. Now, if you're not sure where you land today, if you're in this room and you're not even sure where you land on the spectrum, then I think that is just fine. I hope this helps. We're going to put a couple of phrases up on the screen behind me that I hope will help us understand the difference between belief and doubt and unbelief. 
feel free to write these down. They're not super captivating. They're not anything new, but I hope that maybe one day it can help you maybe even coach somebody else through their own healthy doubts. So in concerning Jesus' identity, belief would say that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Son of God, and he can have mercy on me. Doubt would say, I'm just not sure who Jesus is, or just, you know, a multitude of other things. Is Jesus the only way? Is he really the only God? That's what doubt would say. But unbelief would say, I get to decide who Jesus is. Unbelief leads us to a pride in our own self-sufficiency. Now, this is the great push of our Western society. That the individual is lord over their own life. Now, once you've decided that you're in control of every aspect of your own life, once you place yourself on the throne, what happens is you see Jesus as a usurper, somebody that's coming to make a weak claim on your own godhood. Unbelief refuses to acknowledge our limitations and chooses to ignore the truth that we are unfit to be our own master. We would let ourselves down every time. But instead, we cling harder and harder to control, and we decide that Jesus couldn't possibly be who he says he is. If you fall into that category, if you consider yourself an unbeliever and you're just here to scope things out, that's fine. I'm just here to tell you that you're just going to disappoint yourself. That's what's going to happen. You can't do it, but that is not a bad place to find yourself. Because you can let it go. You can let it go and, let, and just look at Jesus. You can look to Jesus. We've got his autobiography right in front of us. Jesus can be trusted. He has the power to give you what you need. That's what I expect from somebody that is an unbeliever. That is my hope to them. Okay, moving on. Concerning human longing, belief would say that Jesus Christ is the answer to my greatest longings. Doubt would say that I'm not sure if Jesus can help me or if he even wants to. But unbelief would say that if Jesus can't do what I want him to do, I just want nothing to do with him. Both Jesus' identity and human longing, they fill the book of Mark. And truly, they're two of the most powerful questions that we can ask ourselves, okay? Who is Jesus, and can he give me what I need? Those are two great questions to ask yourself today. A healthy doubt can help us decide whether or not we can even bring our pain and our fears to Jesus. Church, it is really, truly valid to wonder if Jesus really is able to do the things that he says he can do. And it's valid to wonder if Jesus really cares about the details of your life like he says he does. Those are two valid questions. It's okay if you land there today. Just don't stay there. The good news is that the answer to both of those questions is yes, he can do all the things that he says he can do and he cares about you just like he says he does. We're going to read Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 here, and it says this, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Even all the hairs on your head are numbered, so do not be afraid, you are more valuable than many sparrows. I don't 
know what the exchange rate on sparrows is, so I can't answer that question for you today. You bear our Father's image. You are worth his attention, and Jesus says that he's on our side. So if you find yourself to be a doubter, a healthy doubt will give you the strength to ask those questions, and you will find your answer in Jesus. Unbelief, however, is another matter entirely. This is how the town of Nazareth made a mess of things. Jesus was addressing human longing at its most fundamental level. Jesus told them that they needed to be delivered, they needed to see, and that he himself was the one that could do that for them. That's what he came to tell them. But instead, they decided that what they needed was to be the center of Jesus' signs and miracles, that they would get kind of the hometown discount on Jesus' blessings. It's really sad because Jesus came to give them something so far above and beyond that. But their unbelief said that Jesus wouldn't give them what they needed, so they decided to take their own path. And Jesus did the exact same thing. He went on his way. It's crazy to me that like, these people can see that Jesus, they agree that Jesus has the ability to do that no one else can. He's performing miracles. They've witnessed this. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. They see all these things and still... They refuse to believe what he says. Maybe you can relate to this. Uh, I used to think that, like, if God would just uh, do some huge miracle, like catching the sky on fire or, like, cutting the oceans in half, that people would just, they, they would be forced to believe that God is real and that Jesus is who he says he is. And then I grew up. Oof. I grew up and realized that at the end of the day, everybody is just going to go ahead and decide whatever truth is to themselves. That's just all that's going to happen. But church, don't we kind of do the same thing? Because God really did send fires from the heavens. God really did split the sea in two. He did those things. People were there. They saw those things. And we're still where we're at in the world today. In fact, God did all those things, and you and I still wonder if he's even worth our attention. My fear is that we just don't see the glory of Jesus enough, okay? It's there, it's always been there, but our scope of vision is just so narrow. You know, for many of us, our scope of vision is just a, is a six-inch OLED screen that fits in our pocket. Or, 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 or uh, our scope of vision is just the news channel that's on our cable box 24 hours a day. Church, we treat the gospel with the wrong kind of familiarity. The kind of familiarity that, G that Nazareth showed Jesus. They thought they knew everything that they needed to know about him. The more, quote, familiar we are with the gospel, the less inclined we are to get to know it further. Does that make sense? Here, I'll, I'll do a little object lesson. Uh, you don't have to close your eyes, but if I asked you to close your eyes right now, could any of you, without looking, tell me what color the drum kit is? I don't even remember. It's blue. It's blue. I thought it was black when I wrote this. I really did think it was black. That's great. So we all sit in this room once a week. We stare at its direction for over an hour every Sunday. That doesn't mean 
that we know everything there is to know about it. You have to look at things with purpose. You have to look at it often. If we think that we can look in the gospel's direction once and just know everything there is to know about it, we're fooling ourselves. Simply put, the truth of the matter is that we just aren't looking at Jesus enough. We let other priorities turn our eyes away from the fullness of the gospel. And most of us are probably content just drip feeding once a week instead. In case you didn't know, uh, we do a book club once a week here right now at True North. It, uh, it happens on Tuesdays after our big staff meeting, and it's open to everybody. So uh, it's, it's been on our app if you guys want to get connected with it. It is a lot of fun. We're reading a book called uh, The Imperfect Disciple by Jared C. Wilson. And he had this to say when it feels like we just don't see Jesus enough. I'm sorry, I, th- I thought I wrote it down on the screen. So I'll just read it for you. I'll try to read it really slowly. Jared C. Wilson says this, that the glory of Christ is actually blaring from the pages of the Bible. God is not only not giving you the silent treatment, he's practically yelling. The problem is not with his voice, but with our ears. The more and harder we listen, however, the more of heaven's glorious music we will hear and thus the more of heaven's glory we will see. And then our soul finds the rhythm of heaven. When it comes to Jesus' identity and the human longings that we all experience, church, if you would consider yourself to be doubting or even unbelieving, either way, the answer is the same to you. That you would look to Jesus and that you would hear his voice in the scriptures. And not just the four Gospels, but each book of the Bible tells the story of Jesus. So if you're hungry to see Jesus' glory, look to the Old Testament. Look to the Old Testament, and as you're reading, ask yourself, how does this passage here point me to Jesus? You can look to the Gospels and ask yourself, what does this passage teach me about Jesus? You can look at the epistles and ask yourself, how did Jesus set this in motion? The answer to your greatest longings are found in Christ Jesus alone. Full stop. The answer to your greatest longings are found in Christ Jesus alone. If you want to know him, and I mean, if you just truly want to know him, you could seek him in the scriptures. And when you do that, he will tell you what your next steps are. I can promise you he'll do that. And finally, for the believer... If you have been struggling with doubt or pain because you keep bringing this this one thing to Jesus over and over for so long, some sort of pain, uh, a broken relationship, if you keep bringing a sin that just God seems to not care that you keep struggling with, if you've been asking or begging Jesus to do something and he just seems to be ignoring you, Just take a moment and consider Nazareth, those who rejected Jesus. See, they so desperately wanted Jesus' blessings and his miracles. They had completely understandable needs. They probably did have needs. But Jesus told them that it wasn't those things that they needed most. It was simply to see Jesus and to trust in him. 
So maybe Jesus is screaming to you from the pages of the gospel today, and he would just have you look. Look at the gospel. See Jesus' glory. Those other things, those pains that you have, they are completely valid, but they just don't compare to knowing Jesus. And that is my encouragement to you today. So I'm going to pray for us. And I swapped things up a little bit. Uh, We are going to do a song that is different from what's in your handout because I just, I don't know, Holy Spirit, I guess, told me this morning that there was a better way to end today. So this is a song that we did for the worship night on Thursday. It was one of the last songs we did. It's a song called Knowing You. And uh, we're going to sing it. And if you guys don't know it well enough, because we've only sang it twice, um, feel free to just listen to the words. But I really hope that you guys will sing along, especially if you were there on Thursday. We had a great time just kind of breaking away and just doing worship for an hour and a half. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a song, and then I'll dismiss us, okay? Okay. Heavenly Father, you are good, and we need you. Every hour we need you. Lord, we seek to know you and know you more than we know you right now. God, we don't look to you enough. That is our confession. I assume that probably everybody in this room doesn't read their Bible as much as they want to. If that's not you, I'm really sorry, church, but I have to assume that's probably a majority in here, that we could all read and see you more. So God, give us the strength to know you, to seek you, to be captivated by you, Lord. We cherish you, and we want to know you more. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.